you think about people in general, whether it's Christians, people around the, the world who don't know Jesus. There's some, some things that are important to all of us, some basic questions that we all wrestle with. And we look for answers to, and we don't feel complete in, until we find answers to them. The, the first thing we're all looking for is a sense of belonging. Is there a place where I am unconditionally loved? Is there a place where I can belong? We're all looking for significance. That is, can I make a difference in this world? Does my being here make a difference to anyone? We're all looking to to answer that question, and we're all looking for direction. What What I mean by that is we all wonder deep inside where is this going? Is, is there a purpose? Where, where is this all heading to? Now, how many of you know, even though we all wrestle with those same questions, those of us who believe the Bible, believe Jesus, believe God and the Holy Spirit and the Father, what they've said to us, have different answers to those questions than much of the world. I hope you all have contact with people that don't know Jesus. That's what we're called to be here for. Otherwise, I believe Jesus would have taken us all as soon as we got saved, right? He said we're to go out and make disciples. I hope you have those relationships where you can discover where are these folks looking for belonging, for significance, for direction. If you've ever wondered how does the worldview differ between a Christian and a non-Christian. Obviously, you can't answer it for every non-Christian because there are many different kinds of non-Christians. But one church wondered that, and they decided to do something creative. They wanted to know how non-Christians answer these questions, so they, they got together a 1,000 people in several major cities around our country. Austin, Texas, San Francisco, Phoenix, close to home, Boston. And this church commissioned... Uh, a secular company to put on panel groups. And to hold panel groups with these non-Christians, they videotaped the panel groups, and the lady that led the panel groups just asked them questions about how they perceived life, how they perceived Christianity, how they perceived the world. And the church shared some of the results that they're, they're getting in. And I just want to share with you a couple of the categories that they, they talked about. And you'll see real quickly through these panel groups where the worldview of the Bible-believing Christian differs from the worldview of those who don't yet believe the Bible or trust in Jesus. First one is, big topic, who is the highest authority? As they listened in on these panel groups, the answer, as you could probably guess, was myself. Over and over, they heard phrases like, I just want to be true to myself. That's the most important thing. Of course, for the Christian, it's the God who reveals himself in the Bible in Jesus. He is the highest authority. View of the world. Many of the non-Christians in these panel groups believe that the way things are is normal and it's, it's getting better. It's actually improving. 
This, this is just the way it is. You hear this in things like, this is my sexual orientation. This is who I am. That was one phrase that came up over and over. The Christian view is that while God created the world good, it has fallen into sin. It is now abnormal and, and declining and in need of change. The ultimate good for the non-Christians in these groups, what came up over and over again, the ultimate good was tolerance, as they define it. Freedom to do whatever I want, and no one can differ with me on that. The Christian good, obviously, is obedience to God and his objective will that he's revealed in Scripture. Just a couple more. God. Uh, for these non-Christians, God is a subjective experience that, that varies from, from person to person. For the Christian, we know that God is an objective person who reveals himself, especially through Jesus Christ and in the Bible. Spirituality. For many of the non-Christians in these panel groups, they took sort of a, a buffet mentality. And spirituality begins with the question, what do I require? And I'm going to add whatever I see that I like to, into my plate to make sure my needs are met. I'll take a little Buddhism, a little Hinduism, a little Christianity, mix it all together. And as long as it feels good to me, basically God exists for my glory so I can pick what I want. The Christian belief on spirituality is that it's living in relationship with God in obedience on his terms. The question is not, what do I require? But what does God require? What is it that, that he asks and commands? Two more. Sin. For many of the non-Christians in these panel groups, it became evident right away that the only sin is calling anything a sin. Saying anything is, is wrong. Because that's intolerant, right? The Christian view of sin is violating God's unchanging laws without changing and repenting. Final one, faith. For the non-Christians in this group, they often express faith as a private journey th that should not be shared with anyone else. They often compared evangelism to terrorism in these panel groups. Uh, they, they use phrases like conversion is coercion. Where if we believe the Bible, we believe faith is based on public historical facts about Jesus Christ that are to be believed personally and shared publicly. Because if this really happened, and if he is the way to the Father, this must be shared. You can see the differences. And some of you may say, okay, yeah, they went to those big cities, even though one of them was Phoenix. We live in in Prescott, right? Is it any different up here? Do we live in sort of this, this bubble where most people up here really are Christians anyway and so we don't really have a real sense of purpose as a church unless we go to Africa or Asia. As long as we're here, we don't really have a job to do. Well, Barna, a lot of you have heard of him, George Barna, recently did a study of 150 cities in our country over 23,000 people were involved in this study. They, they were all adults. And what he was aiming to do is find out which cities in our country are the most post-Christian. 
post-Christian meaning after Christian. We've moved on from Christianity to other things. And they asked the people in these cities 15 questions. Obviously, the first ones I'm going to mention are less important as we get to the top of the list. They're going to get more and more central to what it means to be a biblical Christian. They asked them, do you participate in a local house church in the last year? Have you attended a religious small group in the last week? Have you attended Sunday school in the last week? have, Have you volunteered at church in the last week? Have you read the Bible in the last week? You do not feel a responsibility to share your faith. Do you agree that Jesus committed sins? They asked if you've attended a Christian church in the last year. If you donated money to a church in the last year. And here they start to get real important. You agree that the Bible is accurate. Have you ever made a commitment to Jesus? Have you prayed to God in the last year? You agree that faith is more important than anything else in your life? Do you identify as atheist or agnostic? And do you believe in God? And obviously they, they took all those questions. List of 150 cities. Number one was Albany, New York. It was listed as the most post-Christian city in our country. You know what number 18 was out of those 150? Phoenix-Prescott. Soak that in for a minute. I believe we are here, as it said in the book of Esther, for such a time as this. There may be a thin veneer that gives us the appearance that everyone around us has believed in Jesus. When you dive a little deeper, as they did, underneath the surface, you see there is a need. There's a different worldview around us than what we're talking about in here this morning. And the question for us as believers, and we're going to look at how Paul handled this in Ephesus in just a moment, is are we going to go out there and try to blend in? Because that's what we've done for a long time, right? We don't want to stand out too much. We, we want to be just like them so that we can build relationships and they'll come to our churches and, and we'll water down the gospel some so it's not so offensive. We'll tell some good moral stories so we don't uh, ruffle any feathers. We'll try not to talk about Jesus being the only way. We'll present him as a way. These kind of things, we, we aim to be relevant, but relevance itself is an interesting topic because if, if by relevance you mean, hey, I'm going to aim to communicate the truth about Jesus in a clear and meaningful way, I'm all with you. And I think that's what we need to be doing. But if by relevance you mean so that I don't offend, I remove the truth of Jesus. I remove the gospel. I believe you've lost the very thing that makes us unique and relevant in the first place. Jesus Christ and his gospel is what this world needs. met with Justin on Friday. He was telling me there's a new phenomenon popping up around our country and in other countries. It's called the Atheist Church. We talked about it for a little bit. We wondered what you sing in an atheist church. You know, I, I thought maybe a little Bon Jovi. It's my life. It's now or never. I'm not going to live forever. But then, then we got serious, okay. We, we started thinking, what, what, what is going on here? <laughs> I should not sing, should I? <laughs> they're, they're all very thankful you're here. 
they obviously come together and they, they build relationships. They talk about making a difference in the world. And they probably go out and, and aim to do that. The sad thing is, I believe there are Christian churches, Christian churches that are doing that exact same thing and nothing more. Hanging out together, building relationships, telling some good moral stories and trying to go out and make a difference in the world without ever preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ or the truth of the Bible. Paul talked about this in some of his letters. He talked about a form of godliness without power. The idea there is if you eliminate Scripture, you eliminate Jesus, you eliminate the Gospels, you eliminate the miraculous, what you do is you eliminate the Holy Spirit's blessing in your church, and with him goes the power. In the process, we lose the very thing that the world needs. James Montgomery Boyce said it this way, the contemporary pursuit of the self erupts in two main agonies. Isolation, with its accompanying sense of cosmic loneliness and meaninglessness. According to the Bible, God has dealt with the first, isolation, through creation of the church. The church is part of God's plan to deal with that need for belonging to which a believer in Christ automatically belongs. And with the second, that meaningless, by the incorporation of the Christian into the meaningful flow of history. Meaning the church is meant as God's plan to answer that question. As I believe in Jesus, I belong to him. I find relationships with his body. And secondly, when it comes to meaninglessness, when I join the body on God's kingdom mission, all of a sudden I find that purpose that I've been missing. Are we holding that message up to the world or have we tried to blend in so much that we've lost the very thing they need? That's all by way of introduction as we look at Paul and he shows up in the city of Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. He showed up in a city that had a different worldview than he did and that you and I do. A city of about 300,000, biggest city in Asia, It had been a thriving business center. At the time Paul got there, it derived most of its business and tourism from its temple to a goddess named Artemis. The the historians tell us she was an ugly, multi-breasted goddess of fertility. And they believe she fell down from heaven, which leads many people to believe that a meteorite landed near Ephesus and they actually began to worship this meteorite as his goddess Artemis. So people would travel from all over the world to worship here. We'll find in our account today, there was a lot of magic practice there. A lot of devotion to money. And we're going to see how Paul went in there and see, did he, did he try to just add Jesus to this pot? And say, just throw Jesus on your plate and, hey, we'll all be good. Or did he go in there and say, I've got the gospel, the way, the truth, the life. This is what you need. I think you know the answer, but we're going to look at it. The first part we're going to look at is in Acts chapter 19. And we're going to read verses 4 through 7 in just a moment. But we're going to talk about how real belonging, that real ultimate sense of knowing that I belong, 
only comes through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Just to summarize a little bit before we get to verse 4. He got there and there are these 12 guys there. They describe themselves as disciples of John the Baptist. You remember John the Baptist, right? He was the forerunner of Jesus. He came and said, prepare ye the way for the Lord. I'm not the one. He's the one. I'm not even worthy to tie his sandals. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You need to go with him. Well, evidently what had happened throughout history is there were guys that followed John the Baptist. He was a good guy. They looked up to him, but they never really got the Jesus part. They like got caught on John and Paul starts to explain to them. They've only been baptized with John's baptism. That's as far as they got. They were sort of looking forward to the Messiah. They didn't know Jesus had yet really come. And Paul says to them in verse 4, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. In other words, a change of heart and mind and will. He told the people, listen, to believe in the one coming after him. That is in Jesus. This was revelation of these guys. They were sort of following in John the Baptist's footsteps, not realizing the whole time that John the Baptist was all about Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. And part of what he's showing them is that it's not enough to follow John the Baptist. Even though John the Baptist was pointing to Jesus, you've got to come to a personal relationship with him yourself. If you want that ultimate sense of belonging... You've got to come to Jesus. Paul talked about this sense of belonging when he wrote to this church in Ephesians 4. Listen to what he said in verse 4. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope. Keep hearing one, right? When you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. He's like, guys, John the Baptist was great you got to go on and have this personal relationship with Jesus. There's a couple ideas I take from this. One is it's not enough to hang out with people that do have a connection with Jesus. I mean, hang, if you're going to hang out with somebody, John the Baptist is a pretty good guy to hang out with and follow, right? I mean, he's dead by now, but that's a pretty good guy to follow in his footsteps. Even that was not enough. He's saying to them, you've got to come to Jesus. For you here this morning, it's not enough to hang out with those of us who do have a personal relationship with Jesus. The invitation is he offers you that same relationship by faith and trust in him. The other thing I take from this is that no other relationship can meet that ultimate need for belonging. You can't find that in any mere human. You can't find it in a spouse. You can't find it in a friend. You can't find it in a pastor or a missional community leader. You can only find that ultimate sense of belonging in Jesus. That's what he's telling these guys. And I I think about it, even in terms of religion. Obviously, these guys came out of a Judaistic background, right? That pointed to Christ. And Judaism was of God. 
if even that was not enough for these men to have that ultimate sense of belonging met in their lives, then surely no other religious path the world offers will give you that sense of belonging that only comes in Jesus. Are we proclaiming that to the people that we're hanging out with? You want a real sense of belonging? It only comes in my Savior. And let me tell you about the sense of belonging he's brought to me. I got an email this week that just said, I found that sense of belonging in Jesus. It was reflecting what we're talking about here. Real belonging only comes in Jesus. Second, real significance only comes in living in the power of Jesus. Only comes from living in the power of Jesus. Listen to this account starting at verse 11. God did some crazy stuff through Paul to confirm his message. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. And we know that Paul was often a tent maker. So tent makers had aprons and, you know, different cloths on them that they would use in their trade. These are probably what these are. God's power was working through him in such an awesome way that people would take these aprons, these handkerchiefs, or just touch them, and they were healed or or evil spirits left. Now, wherever God's power is at work, there's always a counterfeit at work. Satan's always aiming for that power and that glory. Verse 13, some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. In other words, these weren't Jews that believed in Jesus. They just saw what God was doing through Paul, and they're like, hey, I want some of that. I'd love to be able to travel around here and have that kind of power. You know, so they tried to use the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches. See, they want to make sure the demon gets the connection. Yeah, that same guy Paul's talking about. That's who I'm, I command you to come out. There were seven sons of a man named Siva, a Jewish chief priest, who were doing this. Verse 15, one day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Evidently, just casually tossing the name of Jesus and Paul in was not enough. When this became known, listen to the reaction to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus. They were all seized with fear. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. You bet. You bet. They they started to look like, wow, it's, it's not just this omen. There's something about this relationship with Jesus that brings power Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. Here comes the magic. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. Which, check this out, a drachma is like a day's wages. So imagine whatever you make in a day, multiply that times 50,000. We're talking millions of dollars worth of magic books here burned. Why? Because they realized 
They were just playing around with stuff that paled in comparison to the power that Jesus brings. And it says, in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. I want to talk about this a little bit. I mentioned that in this, we see that real significance comes only through living life in the power of Jesus. We saw it reflected in Paul. Paul went there preaching Jesus and God wanted to make sure they knew it was real. So he did these miracles and the people were in awe. They were attempting to find significance in other power. As you and I often do today. As people in our world often do today. And part of the question with this significance thing is, is my life about God's glory or is my life about my glory? I believe anytime people mess with magic, other things like that, part of the hope is for them to have this sense of look at me. I'm able to control this situation. I'm able to cast a spell on those that I I despise. I'm able to bless those with love or wealth that I love. Basically, I want some control. It's the same old significance lie that Satan gave Adam and Eve way back in the garden. Surely you won't die. God knows if you eat this fruit, you'll be like him. It's not Satan's role usually to go around and get you to go out in the woods and sacrifice a goat on a pentagram. Usually his aim is to get you to make yourself the most important person in your world. To make your glory the issue. You say, all right, most of us in this room probably aren't playing with magic. There may be some. I don't know. How do we aim to get this control for my glory today? We, we see it when we try desperately to control the lives of the people around us. If you've got a control issue where you've got to control the people around you, got to man, micromanage their every decision to your liking, chances are you're looking for power and glory in your own life. If, if you're a person that practices a lot of manipulation, in your relationships. Well, if I do this or say this, they'll, they'll do what I want. I, that's another sign that you're a person looking for significance in yourself. If you do a lot of boasting, if you find yourself spending large amounts of time just bragging about your accomplishments, there's a good chance you care about your glory and your power more than you care about God. Lying. A lot of us, when we're tempted to lie or do lie, it's because we want to look better than we really are. And that reveals a heart issue that I really care more about what people think about me than, than what they care about God. In this city, they realized all those other things that they were turning to for significance paled in comparison to the power that comes in Jesus. Today, I would say the same thing is true. Jesus said, himself that apart from me you can do what? Nothing. You cannot make an eternal difference in this world apart from Jesus. You can't do it in your own power. You can't do it when you're aiming for your own glory. And I'm not saying it's always going to be somebody grabbing your, your apron and getting healed. Does God still do the miraculous on occasion? Yes, I believe he does. But I'm also talking about does God's power show up 
in your marriage? When people look at your life at your house in your neighborhood, do they see, do they see that Jesus is in the middle of this? And there's something unique about this. Does it show up in your friendships? The, the things you do, the way you spend your time. Is it evident that there's something different? There's something different about that person, that group. Every time I'm with them, there's something they have that I want. Does it show up in the way you do your work? You know, does your boss or other coworkers or, or people around you look in and say, man, why does that guy work so hard? Or why does he seem to do it with a joy even when we're in the middle of the, the doldrums or at school? Do the fellow students around you look at you and say, man, there's something different about this one. There's, there's some power in their life. Real significance only comes in Jesus' power. And finally, real direction only comes when Jesus is your master. A real sense of purpose only comes when we say, Jesus, I will follow you above all else. We're going to see what commonly battles for that position in verse 23. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. I just love, that's what they called Christianity in the early days. The way, not a way. The way, Jesus. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He made these little silver trinkets that people would often take into this huge temple and leave for Artemis, or they'd take them home. You know, I went to show, I went to Ephesus. I got, I got my Artemis bobblehead, or what, what probably wasn't a bobblehead. <laughs> he brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there, this whole practice. He called them together along with the workers and related trades and said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. Here's where you see what he's worried about. Verse 27, there's danger not only that our trade will lose its good name. In other words, we're going to lose our businesses. We're going to lose our income, guys, if this keeps up, if people keep believing in this Jesus. And I don't know if he was sincere in the next part or not, but, or just wanted to play the religious heartstrings. He says, also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. Long story short, what happened? They gathered together. The governor was like, look, there's courts to handle this kind of stuff. I don't care. And Paul ended up encouraging his disciples and leaving. Where I want to go with this, though, is real direction comes only when Jesus is your master. And the most common combatant to that position of master in their lives, you saw it in Demetrius, is what? Money. And that is the most common attack for that position of master in our lives as well. That's why Jesus went out of his way to say, no man can serve two masters. 
He didn't say you shouldn't. He said, no man can. Either you will love the one and hate the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And you can see how the money kept Demetrius from the real direction that he needed in Jesus. Because the money was his master, he missed out on real direction, real purpose in his life. And I think today, how, how do we know who's on the throne? Is it God or is it money? I thought about a couple things. One, when God starts to tug you in a certain direction and says, I want you to follow me and do this for me. If the first question on your mind is how much is this going to cost me? And that's your determining factor. If that comes before, is this what you want, Lord? Chances are money is on the throne of your life. Not saying you should never ask the cost question. Jesus said himself, count the cost. But if that comes before, God, is this what you want? Money's on the throne. If we find ourselves buried under mountains of debt. America, we've all got a mortgage, okay? Not, not going crazy here. But if we find ourselves, because of wanting more and more toys or, or things like that, we find ourselves working 60, 70, 80 hours a week just to pay off all these debts. The, the Bible says that the borrower is slave to the lender. If... if if that debt is driving us to sacrifice time that we could be discipling our families, loving our families, discipling in our community and loving our community, there may be an issue of money being on the throne of our lives and that leads to a hollow, empty heart. If you want real belonging, it only comes in Jesus. If you want real significance, you... You operate in the power of Jesus for his glory. If you want real direction in your life, the direction they needed to choose was Jesus over their money, and they chose the other way. This Jesus is what makes us unique. This is the message that the world needs. The challenge is this week and into the future, whether we're in our missional communities, our homes, our workplaces, is will we put him on display? When we see people looking for real belonging, will we tell them, you can find it in Jesus? When we see him looking for real significance, will we tell them about his power? Will they see it in our lives? When we see him looking for direction, will we tell them how important it is that Jesus becomes the master of their lives? If not, I thought about it like this. How, how silly would it be if you're reading through the Exodus story and God gave Moses and Aaron this amazing staff that could do all these wonderful miracles. You know, turn the river into blood and bring all these flies and Moses and Aaron never used it. They like left it in the desert. Yeah, we got this, God. Okay, how ridiculous would that be, right? Or you think sports. You got a quarterback on a football team and he looks around and he's like, yeah, nobody else throws the ball out here. I feel weird being the only one throwing the ball. So I'm not going to throw the ball today. That would be kind of ridiculous. Or, or you think about it, you're out in the woods with seven friends and, and you're lost and you're the only one with the flashlight. You're like, well, nobody else is using a flashlight. <laughs> I, I don't want to stand out. 
How ridiculous would that be? What, you, the quarterback's going to throw the ball. Moses and Aaron are going to use the staff. You're going to turn on the flashlight. And for us, the idea is we have the gospel that the world does not have. For us to go out there, we're sitting here and not use it and not rely on it ourselves would be the epitome of foolishness. Let's take what makes us distinct and put it on display. Jesus Christ and his gospel. All right? Lord, I thank you so much for Paul's example. Uh, Lord, he went in there and you made yourself evident through him. God, he, he preached Jesus plainly. No, no other religion's enough. No other person's enough. You need to belong to Jesus. No other power is going to cut it. You need, you need to live life in his power. And any other master is going to lead you to a place where you're empty, hollow. Jesus is the one who can give you that true direction. May we be people who claim that boldly and may we be people who are proud of you. Not proud of ourselves or not proud that we found you. That's your grace, but proud of who you are and the difference that you've made in our lives. People who are willing to be different enough to offer the world what it needs. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.